Some of you guys won't remember this, but you know, we used to have telephones that didn't have caller ID. Uh, in our house, in most houses in America, you had the one family phone with the 100 foot cord. Remember that? And if you wanted a private conversation in my home, you answered on that phone. I had a phone in my room when I was a teenager, so that's where I would run. But before that, you would take the phone, you'd walk with it and cord, you'd go into the bathroom, boom, shut the door, you could sit on the john and have a conversation in privacy. Those were the days. You know, you had to go through the, the girl's father on that phone call. And now guys can sneak to the girl with her because she's got a smartphone of her own. One of the, the things, aspects of my life, which I have a great regret. I was recruited by three small colleges to play football coming out of high school. Hamden-Sydney College, Randolph-Macon College, and Gettysburg College. And I didn't want to go to Hamden Sydney, didn't want to go right off Macon, but I wanted to go to Gettysburg, because Gettysburg, if you've ever been there, it's sacred land. It just is a neat, neat place. But being the king of 85%, which is a C in Fairfax County Public Schools, I didn't get in to Gettysburg College, because it's a tough school to get into. Not even football could get me in there. And so the school year went on, and now I got a phone call to play baseball at the University of Wyoming, and I thought, oh my gosh. I'm pretty good. I'm a D1 athlete. No, I wasn't a D1 athlete. And so I agreed to go to Wyoming to play baseball. Come the beginning of June, my mom receives a phone call from Coach Barry Streeter of Barry Gettysburg College. And I'm walking out the door, and she covers the phone like we used to, because she doesn't want Coach Streeter to hear this conversation. And she says, Gene, Coach Streeter's on the phone from Gettysburg. He can get you in if you still want to go. And I said, you tell him I'm going to Wyoming. Wor one of the worst decisions I've ever made. And Mom said, she looked at me weird. You don't want to take the call? I said, no, I don't. And she said, sorry, Coach, he's, he's going to Wyoming. Obstinate, obnoxious, arrogant, 18-year-old. Baseball didn't work out in Wyoming. That's a long story. I wish my mom had said, you're being rude. Take the call. But mom, being a good mother, said, it's your life. You know? And, and it was. The call is what this whole series has been about. I've entitled it, A Call to Faith. Because what we see today's passage is the call of God on Abraham, which we can learn great truths if we will open our hearts and our minds and our ears to what the Lord would have for us. And what we see in Abraham today is genuine faith demonstrated in the essence of the call, the crisis of the test, and the wonder of the Lamb. That's what we're going to see. So turn in with me your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. The essence of the call, the crisis of the test, and the wonder of the Lamb. First, what we see in Abraham here is the essence of the call. Now, before you say anything, this is a test. Isaac was never going to get harmed. All right? We know that as the reader, but Abraham didn't. Just keep that in mind. All right? It's a test that God put on Abraham. Verse 2, then God said, take your son your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. 
sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will tell you about. Notice the similar manner that he called Abraham in verse chapter 12, verse 1, where he said, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. In other words, Abraham is not only called to go, but to go without exactly knowing where he is going, without knowing how it's all going to end, obviously. And this is the normal experience for all authentic believers when he calls us. That when God calls, he calls us to leave the familiar, calls us to, to, to trust his plan even though we don't see it. And three, we have to be willing to offer up our Isaacs if necessary to be the genuine believers we've been called to be. Isaac had become, not surprisingly, Abraham's emotional center. And Ishmael, his older son, is now gone. This is his only son. This is the only bearer of the family inheritance. And so we, too, have our own emotional centers, be it money, success, power, hobbies, relationships. For Martin Lloyd-Jones in the 1920s, it was success and being the best doctor in all of England. And he said in his testimony, he watched a great doctor, a, a co-worker of his, whose girlfriend had suddenly died, who he greatly admired. He was on the fast track to success, and all of a sudden, his world crumbled. And he came and he asked Lloyd-Jones if he could come and just sit with him. And the man stared at the fire for the next two hours. Blank with great, great confusion. And Lloyd-Jones shared this in his testimony that he suddenly realized the vanity of all the greatness of the things of this world. Money, power, success, hobbies, relationships, whatever it is. Now listen, plenty of people over the years have watched someone experience grief and have been moved by it in various ways. And when Lloyd-Jones watched this man, what he heard was the call, the call of God. And the book of Hebrews tells us that this is the call of, in Abraham. Hebrews 11.8 says, By faith Abraham, when called to go, obeyed and went. For he was looking forward to the city which is foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He was looking forward to the city with foundations. See, defining God's call in our lives, we begin to see the sense of the call of God when we realize that without God, there are no foundations. Abraham's going to the city which is, has foundations. And we all have certain foundations, right, that we have placed our foundation on, be it money, power, success, relationships. We'll take intellectual foundations, for example. I picked up an article from Time magazine in the 1950s where this guy eloquently described how ridiculous it is to be a Christian believer because we know for certain that the, the Gospels were written sometime in the 4th century. And many people believed it. I can take you to Maudlin College in Oxford today to show fragments of Mark's gospel which date to the late 40s A.D. 
That's just 15 years after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. 15 years ago, it was 2001. I can tell you what happened in 2001 in my life. Pretty vividly. It was a, it was a significant year in my life and in all of our lives. 2001, my mother-in-law died after a five-year struggle with cancer. Immediately after that, I had to run back to Ambridge to serve in a 10-week CPE experience where, because of my experience in my whole life with kids and I was around life, they put me as the priest of death at the third stage Alzheimer wing at St. John's Hospital in Pittsburgh. Great experience for me. Wonderful. I remember that. Trust me. I remember that summer we had decided brilliantly to move to a bigger house in Ambridge, but it was, had a great name. It was called Sherman Street, named after me. <laughs> right next to the campus. I remember that vividly as we walked to this beautiful, large house where now they house international priests there. Bishop Zumba stays in, in Ben and DT's old room. I remember vividly purchasing the Suburban that we still drive. So it's September 1st, 2011. And ten days later, who can forget, the Twin Towers came down. You see, if we would remember all those things, would we not remember Jesus rising from the dead? And so it is a very reasonable thing to believe what we believe. And therefore, intellectual foundations, moral foundations, psychological foundations. When you realize that you don't have them, and you don't have God, what do you have? Whether you think you're religious or not, there are some things in your life that are profoundly important to you. Your self-image, your hope, your joy, and that can be said that you're, that's your soul's faith. No matter who you are, and I don't care who you are, you're a religious person. There's no such thing as a non-religious person. For whatever you treasure above God is your worshiping object. And life will strip you of it, eventually. It doesn't matter if it's my family people die. Some family move away. Doesn't matter if I lose my sex appeal, if I ever had it. You age, you lose your beauty. Doesn't matter if it's your home, your home will crumble. Your estate, you can't hold on to it. Doesn't matter what it is. It's if what you put your identity into, that's your worshiping object. And when you begin to realize everything that means the most to you that keeps you from jumping off the bridge is more like a sandbar in a rising river and you begin to sense that there's no foundations whatsoever, then you begin to realize if there's no God or if I don't have God, I have nothing, that's when it dawns on you, you're hearing the call of God. Until that begins to dawn on you, you haven't. doesn't matter if you're a nice person. doesn't matter if you go to church. It doesn't matter if you're a little religious. It doesn't matter if you've memorized the catechism or the 39 articles. And the question for each and every one of us, have we come to that place where we've sensed the call of God and we've recognized, I got it wrong. And Jesus has it right. Abraham went out because he sought the city and the foundations whose builder and maker was God. So Go. Let us offer our lives up, and the more and more you see, you'll find nothing that can rack you. There's nothing that can push you around. You have his status. You have his love. And you become 
a woman and a man of beauty, greatness, and flourishing, whose person who masters life rather than having life master him or her. So what does it mean to be called of God? What does it mean to be a Christian? That there are no foundations without God. So what does it mean to grow as a Christian? It means to continually hear and rehear and to grasp by offering our lives up and making him first in our lives. And slowly, bit by bit, you become that person of beauty, greatness, and flourishing. That's the essence of the call. Now, a couple practical points about this essence of the call. Because so many people will come to us and say, you know, because suburban people are very nice, you know. So they won't be rude. That's what's kind of nice about living in Philadelphia, you know. They're just going to tell you, because they're rude in Philadelphia, by the way. You know, they threw snowballs at Santa Claus. All right? Awful. They'll tell you, though, what's on their mind. Midwestern, suburban people, no. They will say, that's very nice that you believe what you believe. So what do you believe? Well, I'm not going to follow Jesus the way the scripture says unless you tell me I don't have to give up this or I have to do that. That's basically what people say, right? thing about the essence of the call and the practical part of the essence of the call in our lives is that we really have to be willing to lay our agendas aside and let him call the shots, not ourselves. Because I have to be willing, like Abraham, to go out quite where he wants me to go, wherever his will for me is to go, and do it unconditionally. If I don't, I'm not going to God at all. And secondly, when it comes to the essence of that call in my life, I have to realize that it always is going to feel a little like dying. Because if there's anything else in this story, it tells you sometimes the God who is trying to save you feels like he's killing you. Elizabeth Elliot, years ago, said it dawned on her one day. She was visiting some shepherds, some friends of hers, who had a sheep farm in northern Wales. And the shepherd had to take the sheep and put him in a vat of antiseptic because these sheep had parasites. And you know what the shepherd had to do? The shepherd had to take, pick the sheep up and dip the whole sheep, head and all, under in this, this vat of antiseptic. Dunk and out. Dunk and out. Dunk and out. At least three times. And do you think that little sheep was real cooperative? <laughs> no. They were struggling. And the wife of the shepherd says, I wonder what it feels like to have your, when it feels like your shepherd is trying to kill you. See, when you feel in the essence of the call, you know what that feels like. Because Jesus said, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, which means to what? Die to yourself. And follow me. That's the essence of the call of God on each and every one of us that we're all called to. Secondly, there's the crisis of the test. Now, I know you very good Sunday school students all were taught. Abraham received the call, and he said, come on, boy. We're going up to the mountain. And he just obeyed. And he just said, fine. We will do this. I'm going to be obedient to God, and it's just going to work out. End of story. No. That's not what's going on here. Because ancient cultures looked to the firstborn child as the ultimate hope for the family. Therefore, God, in this narrative, is laying down 
a huge symbolic foundation that if we stick with our Sunday school individualistic culture version, we'll miss it. Because building it on the firstborn to say something all ancient cultures understood. And if we do a little work, which is exactly what we're doing right now, we'll have a great understanding of what Abraham was going through and what God was at work doing. Because God says over, over to the Hebrews in the scriptures, the life of the firstborn is mine. The firstborn cattle are always sacrificed to God. The first fruits of the grain are always sacrificed to God. And over and over in the scripture, God says, the life of the firstborn is mine. You remember what happened to the judgment of Egypt. Pharaoh wouldn't let God's people go. And therefore, out of judgment to them, who did he take? The lives of the firstborn. In the Jewish firstborn's life, is also forfeit. If they were obedient and put the blood on the lentils and the doorposts, they were rescued. They were saved in the Passover. And you might say, okay, well, that's very symbolic and interesting, Gene, but no. It's all over the scriptures, dear friends. It continues. Exodus 22, Numbers 3, Numbers 8, over and over, the life of the firstborn is forfeit. Unless you redeem it, unless there's a sacrifice made, until there's payment made, it's mine, says the Lord. See, the ancients would understand this, and we don't. Every time God said the life of the firstborn is forfeit, what he's saying is there's a debt of sin that every family owes to me. And if this makes no sense to you, if this command makes no sense to you, then I want you to realize it made perfect sense to Abraham. If Abraham had heard the voice that said, Abraham, take your wife, your only wife, Sarah, and take her up on Mount Moriah and sacrifice her, he wouldn't have done it. Because he would have said, I'm hallucinating. Abraham knew what the ancient Hebrews knew. That is, God is a God of justice. All human beings fail to live according to the law of justice. We all live self-centered lives. That's why the world is in the mess that it's in. And if God is a God of justice, he cannot overlook it. And therefore, the debt of every sin of every human being and every family owes that debt of sin. And in a family-oriented, not an individualistic culture, the forfeiture of the firstborn was God's way of saying, there's no one righteous, no, not one. There's a debt of sin that everyone has to pay. And when God says, offer up your son Isaac, Abraham realized God was calling in the loan, calling the debt. So he has a real crisis, and here's the problem. People think, well, he's, he's going up on the mountain, and he's thinking, well, this is fine. God's going to do it. This is fine. That's not what's happening here. Why is he in such real crisis and horror as he's walking up that mountain? Hebrews 11 explains it. Listen to this. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. It's through Isaac. See, the command of God is apparently contradicting the promise of God. For years, this promise has been made to Abraham. And there's a debt of sin that needs to be paid, but the promise of God was that through Isaac, the world would be saved. So what's Abraham thinking? How could a God of command be also a God of promise? 
How could a God of holiness also be a God of grace? How can God, who rightly can call in this debt of service, also be the God who says, through Isaac, the world will be saved? He's calling Abraham into utter God-forsakenness. And God is confronting Abraham with the question of whether he's willing to give up God's very gift of promise. And God appears to want to remove the salvation that was begun by himself into history. So what's actually happening? How in the world can God be a God of holiness and a God of grace? Through the wondrous Lamb. Look at this verse with me. Verse 6. He says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, and offer him up. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took it with him. Verse 6, so Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his only son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. Did you notice? You know, he puts everything aside, but he only takes the dangerous stuff. And as the two of them went on together, left the servants behind, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, and this is the only place in all the Bible we hear Abraham and Isaac speaking to each other. Verse 7, Isaac says to his father, and it kind of slows down now. You're going in fourth gear, and all of a sudden you slow down in first gear. My father. And Abraham says, here I am, my son. Isaac said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answers in verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both it went both of them together. So what pushes Abraham up that mountain? Is it sheer obedience? Is he mustering up faith? He says, I can do it. I got to do it. I must do it. I will do it. No. That's not what is in his heart. What's driving him up that mountain is that God will provide. That word in Hebrew, provide, can be translated, God will see or he will see too. God will see to it that a lamb will be provided for the sacrifice, Isaac. It's important that we understand that. Because what's happening here, as he begins to put this teenage boy on the altar, that's an obedient kid. He starts to offer him up, and the angel intervenes and said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything for him, for now I know that you fear God seeing you would not have withheld your son, your only son, from me. See, if Abraham had been at the foot of Calvary, the moment Jesus died, you know what he would have done? We look at verse 12 that we just read. He would have reversed it around. He would have said, I get it. Now I know. Now I know that you love me, Lord, because you did not withheld your son, your only son, from me. How do you know God loves you and values you? Delights in you so much that you can really rest in that and be free from anything the world thinks. Anything from being enslaved to the world, fear of the world, enslavement to situations, enslavement to circumstances. You can't do it abstractly. You can't do it by saying, oh, I believe Christianity. And then go home and, and live however you want to live. No, it's by the Spirit 
you have to see Abraham and Isaac going up to the mountain as a picture of the price the father prayed at Calvary. And it moves you. It changes you. From the bottom of your heart, you say, now I know. I get it. I get that you love me because you gave your only son. You did not withhold your only son from me. You see, he's calling you. He's called you. Take the call. Please, surrender it all. Go out. Place your full trust in him. Yeah, you're not going to know where you're going at times. And yeah, it's going to feel like death at times. But it's in so dying to yourself that you will experience God's purpose for you, which will be fully freeing, and you'll have peace that passes all understanding in this life and assurance of eternal life. Because he is holy, just, and holy, merciful through his death upon the cross. Because John said that himself this morning in the gospel reading. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Because the reality, dear ladies and gentlemen, is that you are loved with an everlasting love. Jeremiah 31.3. And underneath are the everlasting arms of God. Deuteronomy 33.27. Now you know. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that in this, this very famous story, it's right up there with Jonah and the whale. And all the other stories that so many people know from Sunday school and just look past. And, and it just exists in pop culture. But in this narrative is all that we need to know about the power and the mystery that we need to face anything. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you and your son were the only ones who ever really had the full horror of such a test come down on them. And Jesus, you pass with flying colors. And you pass this test for us. And we thank you for that. Heavenly Father, you walked up onto the, the mountain of Calvary with your only beloved son. You laid him on wood. And there was no way anyone would ever stop you. You knew it and you did it. And we thank you for it. That you did that for us. And we pray that the knowledge of this fact would transform us all this morning. Help us to see, like Abraham, you are the God who fulfills your promises. And you fulfill what you command for us. And if we didn't know both of them, then the meaning of the sacrifice of your son would never change us and never make us beautiful in you. Great and flourishing as Abraham was. We pray that this would affect each and every one of us this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.